a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Utah's source for exclusive access and insights behind the news. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It is great to be with you today. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. And as always, we've got lots of ground to cover. We're going to try to continue to divide the rage from the reason and elevate the conversation. And our next guest is someone who does that on a regular basis. Uh, I was mentioning before the break that uh, often uh, our next guest and I are somewhat pitted against each other. At least I think the producers think we're pitted against each other uh, as we go uh, on different uh, TV outlets. And uh, Dr. Basil Smeichel uh, joins us. Uh, He is a lecturer at uh, Columbia School of International and Public Affairs and uh, a political analyst, uh, was the executive director of the New York uh, Democratic Party and uh, a host of other things. And uh, Basil, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, it's great. You know, I, I think you and I have, have appeared together on everything from MSNBC to Fox News and just about everything in between. And the thing that I al- always love and appreciate uh, is that you always push things to principle and uh, you get to the heart of the issue as a, as opposed to the, the heat of the politics of it all. And uh want to start our conversation today uh, with uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, not the politics of it, but uh, your memories of her, what do you think her legacy is? Well, I tell you, I, I remember when she was nominated, and, you know, she's a Cornell grad, I'm a Cornell grad, so I, I just remember having that connection to her, and, um, you know, the, the, the sort of sense of pride that I felt, uh, again, because of that connection, because she's from New York City like I am, she's from Brooklyn, um, although I'm from the Bronx, we have a little rivalry there, but that's all right. Um, but, uh, you know, Yankees, Dodgers, so, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I reflect on something that has been talked about a bit, but not getting, I think, enough coverage, which is the friendship that she had with Antonin Scalia. You know, and there's some that would wonder why uh, or how someone who was viewed as so liberal could have someone could be considered uh, so close to someone who is viewed as so conservative, you know, as their as their opinions could be so wildly different. And I think honestly, it's a and and I experienced this too with with colleagues, with students of mine. You know, there's just an appreciation for the institution, um, for you know, a desire to want to get things right. And I mean right, meaning like, you know, to think through 
the, the, the merits of an argument that's presented to you and really uh, argue, uh, and, and think through a decision um, and potential outcomes that are true to your best guess of what the framers and the, the legislators would have intended. And there's, you know, there's something admirable and honorable about that. Even if you come out in different places, I think the, the, the search for truth, the attempt at wanting to do it right, um, can bring people together. Yeah, and I uh, I think we need that uh, more than we've ever needed that. And uh, again, it's one of the things I really appreciate about your approach and I think what you teach uh, as you have your students together talking about uh, the political process, and, and I'll get to that in just a moment. I know you also served as a uh, an advisor, a strategist for Senator Hillary Clinton uh, when she was the senator from New York, and so you know the uh, ins and outs of uh, Capitol Hill and what happens uh, in all the Senate battles. Uh, it seems to me that we're losing a little bit of uh, the Senate being the, the great deliberative body uh, it's supposed to be, and I, I think some of these court fights, these Supreme Court fights, are really because the Senate in particular has abdicated its authority and power over to the executive branch. I mean, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I think the, you know, the, the, these judges, uh, the judicial fights, and I, and I get that conservatives tend to, this tends to be a, a more galvanizing issue, um, judge, judicial appointments. It tends to be more galvanizing for those on the right than they are for the left, even though we are more, we tend to be more issue-driven. So the issues that come before these judges that drive us, but not this, the notion of getting judges appointed and elected. Um, and, and so what I find interesting is that we see the judiciary as a proxy for issues that we don't work out on by ourselves. What I mean by that is, you know, the Senate and the House are supposed to find ways to work out these thorny issues that do have the potential to divide us as a nation. But come together. If you look, I, I know that everybody reads with earnest the Federalist Papers, but I go back and read them from time to time <laughs> for my students. And, you know, one of the things that, that one of the Federalist Papers talked about in determining the separation of powers was making sure that they that we elected people through whose wisdom you can filter a lot of the issues that may come to the forefront that may come to their desk, but be able to pull out of it the important pieces of it that could be used to create national policy. Uh, um, and I think we we've lost a bit of that, right? So yeah. these battles, the judicial fights, and others become proxies for the work that we won't do. Yeah, uh, that's so true. And uh, I want to get uh, for a minute. You mentioned something you and I were on. I can't remember what we were on last week. Was it Newsmax or one of those? Uh, uh, Bloomberg. Bloomberg. It was Bloomberg. That's right. Uh, so we were on Bloomberg together last week. And uh, you mentioned something that you are talking to your students about in terms of making sure that the legislative process gets to this iterative uh, iterative component or uh, really breaking things down into these smaller bills as opposed to these big sweeping uh, Bill, tell me what's happening in your class, what you're teaching, and how are your young students responding to that? Well, they, you know, it's tough for, for younger students because they, and I, I was this way, I mean, you want, you want change and you're not fully, you don't understand as much why processes take time and why. So, for example, so here's a good example. I think a semester ago um, in, in one of my classes talking to students about 
how um, when Joe Biden made a comment about working with people like a Strom Thurmond or or uh, or someone else who or Helms Jesse Helms people who could who were segregationists and so on yeah. and you know you have young people say well how could that happen how could he do that so well it's a it's a hundred people in that chamber. Joe Biden has no control over what South Carolina does in electing their leader, right, or electing their member in the Senate. But you get into a body like that, folks find a way to have to work together to pass legislation. And oftentimes, because of those very divisions, you can't agree to have – it's hard to agree to get these sweeping pieces of legislation. And, of course, if you're younger, you just want change. You know, you're not going to understand that you have to play the politics of this. And I don't mean politics as a big P partisanship, but also even regional yeah. politics um, matters a lot. And so they, they're not as understanding of that. And look, you know, when I was growing up, when I was young, you know, apartheid was a big issue and getting institutions to pull out and, you know, divest from apartheid was a big issue. And, and you could see how, you know, protests, and organizing around that actually forced institutions to change. I would say that the Senate and the House are, are, are not that quick to move. <laughs> you know, they don't. They don't have just. You know, it's it, you can't just move them on the drop of a on a dime. And I, I, it's it's a difficult thing for students to understand, and even more difficult for how to be patient and affect change over longer periods of time. But I think they've come to understand that it is that it's sort of a necessary evil, if you will, in in, in trying to work with government. Uh, and and such an important part of that process. And again, coming back to some some real basic things in terms of how we treat people. Uh, one of the things that we we played this earlier, uh, Justice Ginsburg actually speaking at uh, Justice Scalia's funeral, uh, her eulogy to him. And she talked about how they both disagreed on the interpretation of what was written. But I love this. She said, we both shared a reverence for the court and its place in our system of government. And uh, I, I know you're very familiar with the uh, the Stoics and many of those principles. What of those uh, do you see in your – or do you try to push into your classroom in terms of, hey, here's some principles and some character traits – uh, that would help us talk across our differences and, and actually get to those solutions you were talking about? Well, I think just, I mean, it's a great question because those are those are skill sets that you have to develop, right, which are, you know, just ability to listen, number one. And and one of the things that I tell people is that you, when you, when you spend more time trying to prove your point than actually listen to somebody else's, you push people into their, silos more deeply and concretely. So the first and foremost, like just don't just take time to not take some moments to not argue your point and actually just listen. The more you listen, you'd be surprised at how much more common ground you would find if you actually work to get people to sort of understand both sides of particular, you know, arguments. And I think that's the biggest issue, the biggest point that I tell my classes and I tell everyone, you know, at the very beginning, read everything. Watch everything, because your side is not the only side. And if you, as as quickly as you hold and as tightly as you hold on to your principles, somebody's holding on to something else. And you have to understand why that person does what they do. I'll give you a very quick, quick example. 
I was up at, I was, you know, I was a corn, as I said, I was a Cornell graduate. I was speaking to a class a couple of years ago. I got up early. I had four hours to kill. So what do you do when you have four hours to kill in Ithaca, New York? You get a tattoo. So, <laughs> so I have this, getting this tattoo. And the guy, you know, the tattoo artist is, you know, this is captive audience here. I can't go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. So we just start talking, and he's asking me what, what I'm here for. And I don't always tell people what I do for a living yeah, because I really want to just hear about them. Yes. And he tells me, you know, that he's a libertarian, all, you know, always lived upstate New York. He's like, I like, I like the Democrats on some issues. I don't like them on others. And, you know, we had a great conversation. And you'd be surprised if you just allow yourself to have conversations like that, open, honest, without judgment. You'd be surprised at how far you can get. I don't think it works every time, but it will work enough times for us to get past some of this gridlock. Yeah, uh, such great insight. Uh, so grateful to have uh, Dr. Basil Smeekle with us today. Uh, Basil, thank you for carving time out for us. We're going to have you back. I think we you have some new fans uh, here on the show and uh, love your insight. My pleasure, man. We'll keep the we'll keep the conversation rolling. You got it. Take care. Thank you. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and step aside again. That was Dr. Basil Smeekle uh, from uh, Columbia. Uh, he's a lecturer of international and public affairs, and a, a great man. He and I disagree on a host of things, uh, but we love to push it to principle and have a good conversation. And we're going to continue that. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.